Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantal. Tiso. And we are back for our first episode of 2019. How have you guys been? Exhausted, like us, probably. Yeah. Meh. She's all right. Um, We thought we'd kick off today, or I thought we'd kick off today. Uh, we're talking a little bit about stuff we've read since, like, you know, do like a like a mini Surviving Society book club, which is yeah. something we've done before. So, Chantal, yeah. do you want to tell us about what you've been reading? Um, so, I just read Michelle Obama's Becoming, um, and I obviously have my reservations about the Obamas. Like, do you want to say what they are, though? Because I feel okay, like... So, I feel bad saying this because I think they're actually really good people, both of them. Mm. Like, especially reading the book, it made me realise sort of where, first of all, where they've both come from and what they were doing before he decided to run run for president and be part of government, basically. Have you read his book? I've read... um, Dreams 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 of My Father? I've read that one, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he's a very good writer Mm. as well. And so... The where they come from and the things that they were doing, particularly in Chicago, Illinois, and like the community, the community activism they were mm-hmm. doing, was so like there can't be any president that has come from that sort of background. Like they were just doing good by people, both of them. And I, I think I always sort of knew that, but just reading about their journeys in Michelle Obama's book was really good to hear. Like some of it brought me to tears. Like she is. She's done a lot of very good stuff. Um, it was really interesting. Sorry, the way because I haven't read it, mm. but the way they pitched the book mm. was so strange to me. Like those mm. pictures of her on the tube. Sorry if I'm not in London, but you might have seen. There were like photos of her in like a white dress, mm. like with this huge grin on her face, and like you know she looked like you know she's loving life, but it also made it look a bit like she was the author of like. I don't know, like mm. a kind of trashy novel. Mm. That was what I read. I was like, I don't yeah. really know what they're going for here, mm-hmm. but maybe that's just like me as like not really knowing a huge amount about the Obamas and yeah. what their message was. Yeah, no, it was, she is pitched as like, in what in some respects she's pitched as evil black woman. And then in right. other respects she's pitched as like the, oh, the acceptable face of black women. Mm-hmm. Like Kimberly Crenshaw, I think even Angela Davis have done some really good um, critiques of the Obamas. But yeah, so reading the book, I was very, I was pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed it. It's really interesting hearing about how she didn't want to be first lady, and it took Barack six months to persuade her. Oh really? Yeah. What? Because she was like, "I'll be straightjacketed. I can't do my work. Yeah. I can't yeah. live a life." And it was really interesting because I've I've followed and how how old was I? Two thousand and two thousand seven, two thousand six. So yeah, how he, old was I? I don't know. I would have been sixteen. I remember it happening when I went yeah, sick. Yeah, so I was a bit young, so I was like fourteen, fifteen, and it was really it was quite a big thing in my life because my dad was followed followed it really closely because mm. my dad grew up in Chicago, so I remember a lot of it well and reading Reset Michelle's perspective around when the press started going for her was actually just so hard Well, to that's read. the thing, like, like when you say, was... like, criticising the Obamas, it's like, obviously there's the Obamas and then there's, like, the, the press circus around them and yeah. those are quite distinct. Like, the message they try and put out versus the message that is created by yeah. the right-wing media or whatever media that... And one of the things that I think comes across in the book is that the presidential team that was helping Michelle underestimated how racist the media were and how much they would go for her. Really? And she wasn't, so, she wasn't, she, she's quite clear that she wasn't trained enough 
before they went out there and she sort of just effectively got sprung into the public art, like sprung oh into God. doing speeches. And obviously there was the moment where she got, um, said that this is the one of the first times that she's felt proud of um, Americans and it was completely <laughs> twisted and like, yeah, just really awful stuff like that. Um, but then like in the book, she goes on about how much she respects Queen Elizabeth and stuff. Oh, like, fuck off. Yes. <laughs> but, then, like, but then on the flip side of that, there's her and Queen Elizabeth like had like a, they she touched her shoulder or something, and then like the Daily Mail went in on her, calling yeah. her like disrespectful. I, I mean, it's a bit like what's happened to um, Meghan Markle. Oh yeah, yeah. Like you know, she's the evil black woman who's Who destroying holds, the rainforest, and, and she keeps holding her baby. Like, stop letting her hold her baby. What has it been born? No, as in like holding her bump. Why shouldn't she? Like, the press are just going in on her. For and, like, yeah, like, all that stupid stuff. Like, you know, there was one the other day where it was, like, Harry's going bald. Is it Megan's fault? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Is that what it said? Yeah. And you're like, uh, yep, that's how genetics works. Yes, yep. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I have... I've got a newfound respect for her. Interesting. For sure, that I don't think I necessarily have before. I, I definitely see... I've always seen her value in being somewhat blackface in a high place and how that can be inspiring for some people. But that can only go... A certain way yeah but listening to her story where she came from which is not fetishized as well which is what i thought it would be in the book as in like oh like humble beginnings it's not like that at all like it's done very well mm-hmm. um, so i never read her story i don't really know much about her but i do know about know about this yeah that she got and obviously because i live most of the time in the far right so from her i don't know how it must feel for someone calling her a man yeah, that, that, she speaks about that in the o- yeah. in the opening of the book. She says there's places on the internet where people yeah, say she, that I am a man. She's a man, and so this is this is a, a, a well beast. a well known thing. She's a man. She's a beast. She's had she's been uh, had reassignment surgery, all this kind of thing to kind of dehumanize her, her gender, her race. It it, it didn't really matter. Yeah, wow. and, it, and it's like I said, it's strong. Mm. It's strong. Like Alex Jones is probably the best proponent of that. Yeah. Theory. Oh God, he's vile. Yeah, who's that? He's a he's was he which one does he? He's, 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 he's a massive conspiracy theorist. Oh, Jesus. Wars, but Info he, Wars, yeah, yeah. and the other one is what? What's the one that Steve Bannon owns? Um, Breitbart. Yeah. yeah, he's on. He was on that. But, but Alex Jones is like he's made millions from that that kind of theory. Wow, it's insane. Talking and listening to how she met Barack and what it was like seeing him come up through the ranks is very interesting as well. Again, look, look, he did some very stupid things, I think. There's a lot to say about what he did wrong and that presidency. But he's quite an impressive person and has got a very impressive track record with helping people. Like, I don't know. Well, and also, yeah, there's all the stuff about how he was basically hamstrung by racism. Like, the way the government was like, we are gonna fuck you. Well, like, the at the House of Representatives. Yeah, she talks about that the first time he gave a speech and no one applauded him the first That's time he gave horrifying. a speech. And she said she knew at that point that this was going to be a very difficult eight years. So I saw um, saw Ash Sarkar speak, who's like, she works for Navarra Media, which is like the sort of far left, like biggest far left news outlet. Yeah. I don't know if it's biggest in terms of like... It's got quite a big, it's got a big reach. Yeah, yeah, it's got a big reach. And she's like... 
the only brown one yeah. in it. But yeah, so she was talking at the Stuart Hall Foundation and they had this very strange panel, which was Michael Rustin, who's like an old school sociologist who worked with like Stuart Hall and Doreen Massey. Mm. The speech was like basically utter rubbish and I would have called him out on it had other people not done. Like yeah. he was talking about like, oh, well, you know, Brexit, people are worried about migration, but what we need to do to solve that is to use the... Um, the migration legislation that we already have in place to stop more migrants. And you're like, dude, have you seen what's been happening to migrants? Like, the government is destroying them. We don't need to do more. Anyway, it was very odd. And then they had this guy from The Guardian who just writes the same piece over and over again about, like broken small towns in Britain and you're just like enough already yeah but yeah so Ash Sarkar was yeah very much held her and she was a really good speaker and she was saying like you know the thing about Trump is it's like Barack Obama got elected you know it's like he was the most eloquent the most intelligent the most like just eligible candidate ever to be president and he was black you know and she was like you know the Trump thing is like, it took your most exalted son to become president, like saying that to black people and saying to show you what it's like for white people, we are going to take the most degenerate, most disgusting, most destructive, repulsive white person we can think of. And we're going to make him president because we can. And we don't have to be clever. And we don't have to be good at our jobs. And we don't have to be anything except rich and white and male. Oh, God. And that's what that is comes across in Michelle Obama's book. The work that went into creating the Obama yeah. even brand. Oh, my God. Yeah. He didn't, she, they didn't see each other for like five years. Are you joking? Like, that's how hard he Beforehand. was. Beforehand? Yeah, as in when he was uh, governor and then yeah. when they was, like, beginning to wow. get, get ready. And also, they spent so much of their own money getting his campaign started. And then when he started, when he did this first speech at the Congress thing, yeah. before he was running, yeah. um, his book that he had written, which is uh, Footsteps of My Father, which I'd read, had done really badly. And then he did that speech. And, and then exploded, the book, And then yeah. exploded. And they used that money to fund the campaign. Oh. Anyway... Interesting. Yeah, they, I agree with her on that point. Yeah. Like, it, and like, yeah, you can disagree. Obviously, Obama, you know, he did shit. He bombed a lot of people. Yeah. I'm not condoning that. No. But yeah, the politics of who gets to bomb all the people. Yeah. yeah. It's an imperfect situation. But mm. I do think a sociologist, it's quite interesting reading. Yeah. It's quite interesting reading, basically. I was presently surprised. And That's good. if you know me, you know how critical I am. <laughs> <laughs> what about you two? What have you been reading? Um... I have been reading National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy by uh, Roger Eatwell and Matthew Godwin. Now, I was pre-warned <laughs> before I read this book that they are very racist. But I'd like to give everyone a go because everyone's got something to say. So he's talking about, the, well, both of them are talking about the current moment, how populism, both left and right, has become the new go-to. So liberalism has in effect caused its own downfall that populism is a kind of a, a natural part of this due to like things like the alignment for example the two mainstream parties don't represent the, the masses anymore so people are more likely to line up behind someone like Tommy Robinson or uh, Matteo De Silva Was he, is it Silva? The Italian, yeah. Italian guy yeah. whatever his name is yeah so um, yeah but as I'm reading it it's slightly racist <laughs> as I'm reading in what way in what Just, way the way they would say, like, 
right-wing populism especially has a kind of... I've got a point. Antipathy to... No, antipathy <laughs> to, like, immigrants, like, hating immigrants. And they kind of don't pick up on that. They're like, oh, well. I'm like, but that's the whole point. You don't ask, you don't ask how I feel. As in, like, it's racist because it ignores racism. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, and it just describes what's happening? It or? Just, it, no, like, a one-liner. It was just, like, a throw-off or throw-away and, and say, like, well, yeah, it might lead to, like, people hating immigrants, but... And I'm like, but well, no biggie. Yeah. Because so, no one's ever dies from hatred. <laughs> it's it's insane. But like I said, it's not... They do make some good points. They do make some good points. Like what? Like, like I said, the, the idea of like the alignment from traditional parties, the way liberalism is it, kind of suffering. It's trying to answer these questions and it can't really answer these questions about uh, growing social inequality. Like liberalism is supposed to have this kind of trickle-down method. But I mean that is never exactly. This, this, is, this is what you're kind of taught and told, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and can't get over the fact that they omit, <laughs> like basically, my experience of being an ethnic minority in this. So mm-hmm. they kind of say, well, yeah, this happens, but yeah, people died over this. Yeah, Holocaust has happened over this. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Do you know much about the authors? Not really. I I saw the book, picked it up. And I tried to go in with an open mind. And people were telling me they're racist, but I tried to, to make my own mind up. Because isn't Matthew Goddard... He's at Burt Bay. Burt Bay. With and he's, Eric Halfman. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, he yeah, did yeah. the conference, like, yeah. are ethnic minorities threatening... So he's been publishing life. a lot since Brexit. Yeah, we've spoken about it before. They had a conference where they, yeah, like, it was all over. It was all over academic Twitter, if you follow the people we follow. But, mm-hmm. yeah, they had a conference called, like, Are Ethnic Minorities... Oh, no, Are Muslims a Threat to the no, West? Ethnic minority, uh, ethnic minorities a Threat was to the West. Was it? I don't know. It was something like that. And then they were like, oh, we were just trying to start debate. It was, yeah, it was really repulsive. And and this is what I get annoyed with. So they conflate being an arsehole with with freedom of speech. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they're trying to say, well, I'm just trying to start a debate or speak honestly about issue. And are you really? Are you? (laughs) There's ways of going about it. Like, lately I've just seen this happen, this trickle down to the person on the street so they think they're being quite open and quite quite new age but they're just being racist basically mm. yeah it's that kind of like I mean and that's like a classic fascist thing right oh the little guy you know being shot on by the man mm. you know like the kind of archetypal little guy and it's like yeah we should listen to him because like you know in Nazi Germany it was we hate Jewish people and like this person like you know, like that kind of rhetoric mm-hmm. is integral to creating a society where hatred or, like, dehumanising a particular group. A hundred percent. And like I said, I think, given, like, the reason why I picked up the book, because I'm quite interested in the current moment and the kind of problems we're having as liberal democracies. They're, they're big things to be discussed because they are massive problems. And I do agree with them that like, populism is here to stay. It's not going to disappear. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what we do to get at this current moment. So that's why I picked up the book. But they... Like anything, they kind of, they're not, it's not perfect. They do admit about race and they talk, they glide over it rather than deal with the actual issue or how it might make people feel or what happens to these people. I saw a good quote the other day. I think it was, was it maybe Robbie Shillingham? Who's Robbie Shillingham? Sociologist who talks about race, class and Brexit. Well, I say he talks about, he's had a book out about that and he's just a really amazing writer about yeah. race and class, basically. And I mean... Yeah, how can you talk about class when it's like class is ra- like capitalism is racialized? Yeah, like the you can't thing. you can't disentangle 
In the same way that capitalism is gendered, capital, you know, like... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, like I said to you earlier, it's hot. when people don't see that, and it, that's not the experience, they think you're you're almost lying. Yeah. Yes, oh God, this was what... What's a, oh, what the fuck is his name? I can't even remember now. Is he called like John Harris or something? This Guardian writer who writes about small towns. And like, he just said this phrase, and it's like, we're at the fucking Stuart Hall Foundation. Stuart Hall, they're like, you know, the lauded father of like cultural... Mm theory in Britain at least if not beyond and um, he was like yeah you know and I've spoken to people in London who said they've had like racism on the street I mean I assume they meant out of London no honestly like me and Paulette were on the train yesterday there was a homeless guy on the train, white guy, and he was asking people for money. The train was full. It was in the middle of the day. Yeah. Um, no one gave him any money. I didn't have any change. I didn't give him any money. Paulette didn't have any change. I didn't give him any money. Oh, God. Me and Paulette stood up. He came over to us, got into both of our faces, and was like, um, have you got any money? And I was like, I'm really sorry, I haven't got any change. He's like, of course you fucking haven't. He's like, look at me, look at me. And just basically like started on us. And we both just like leaned in. So the train was full, everyone sat down, all white people, because we were in the city. And no one did anything. Yeah, why would um, no, like, no, but that's happened to me so many yeah. times. But just like, the fact that people think that racism or opportunities to be racist ha- has some sort of like criteria is just I mean just extraordinary I was like yeah like what do you think happens in outer London that's different to inner London or what do you like as if like yeah. what the fuck like yeah. I was just I just wanted to stand up and be like who the fuck are you and like the most amazing thing was like this guy in the audience was like I'm a black guy and I find listening to you just like like he was like you know I'm really lucky to have had a tertiary education I come from a really working class background and then he just like tore down these white men on stage and like I was just like creds to you because it was like you're the person they should have had on stage I don't know why they invited these people Mm. they were just talking out their asses but you see this is the thing the the kind of growth Mm. of like of overt racism if you can if you want to give it a name so kind of thing that I was kind of most upset about over the holidays was the kind of racism at football matches again the calling of people monkeys like I grew up in an era when I know that was that's standard that was for me, that was standard. But it stopped. It definitely Well, stopped. you say that, but in York, there was, like, one black guy in my sociology class, and he was like, I'm always called a monkey yeah. just by, like, kids in York. And but, that's, you know, like, 2012. So I used, to, I used to grow up, and that would be on Match of the Day. Yeah. So that would be on TV, BBC One, that's prime time. But there's a whole generation of people that never saw that on mm. TV. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So yeah. This is, I'm part of that. I'm definitely part of that. For, for and, someone to see that and try to make sense of that and have that come back... And then I'm st- I'm seeing organised fights with hooligans who linked to neo-Nazi parties, and I'm like, I I don't understand this moment. So that's why I picked up that book to try to understand. Well, that's a lie. I'm, I'm gonna lie. I'm, I've always been trying to understand this. Why are people like this? Given the, the, what their lived reality is. What have you read, Saskia? So I'm obsessed with this book because I think it's just amazing. It's called Revolting Prostitutes, um, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights, and it's by two sex workers called Juno Mack and Molly Smith. Juno Mack's based in Edinburgh, I think, and Molly Smith's based in Eastern England. Don't quote me on that. I think she is. And the book is about, um, like, in a nutshell, it's about, like, why sex workers' rights are so important and, like, why decriminalising sex work 
and treating sex workers work and giving sex workers workers rights is just like mm -hmm. the fundamental way to like allow sex workers to be protected against like state violence and client violence and I thought one of the things that was most interesting about it was like um you know I've grown up in this very privileged existence where the police don't really come like affect my life and it's only in the past few years where I've become like part of like anti-racist activism stuff that I've kind of had like you know I feel like a bit of a dickhead saying it but like had this realization that like for some people like the police are a daily reality like interacting with the police is a daily reality and having that mm -hmm. violence um, directed at them as a daily reality and it's really interesting because in this book about sex workers like there's a whole branch of feminism which they call carceral feminism which is based on the idea that like the best way to protect sex workers is to increase like policing of sex work and yeah. you're like but it's the police who are the most violent towards sex workers. Mm -hmm. Like, why would you increase police power in that situation unless you literally never came in contact with the police? Mm -hmm. And this is why feminism and anti-racism cannot be disentangled, just as, like, yeah. you know, racism and capitalism cannot be disentangled. Mm -hmm. Because, like, yeah, they go into, like, why borders, like, are so violent for people who do sex work. Um, they talk about, like, the place of sex and feminism and how, yeah, there's this whole branch of, like, anti-porn, anti-sex work feminism that actually just, like, perpetuates a lot of the violence that, like, misogyny does. Mm -hmm. So, like, this idea that sex workers, like, you know, prostitutes being, like, basically, like, rubbish bins yeah. for like men to like use and throw away mm -hmm. and in a way saying that like oh well you know sex work like rapes all women and you're like well firstly that like your experience is not that of a sex worker yeah. so how can you say that and secondly like sex workers can tell when they've been raped when they haven't been raped just as like you know when you've experienced sexual harassment at work and like giving sex workers like autonomy and like yeah and then yeah there's all the stuff about migration in there and how like sex workers are often deported but often like it's to do with like racist panics and like the racialization yeah. of sex workers all this kind of stuff like even women in the UK even women who have every right to be in the UK so if they're from another EU country get deported if they're like caught yeah. engaging in sex work even if the sex work is legal mm -hmm. because it's like where well, you're like a depraved person and we don't want you and you're like, but they haven't done, they actually haven't done anything wrong. Yeah. Like sex work in itself is not illegal in the UK. Mm. Like it's just, yeah, it completely blew my mind. It's just an amazing piece of activism. It is beautifully written. It's just like, I wish all sociologists wrote like this. Yeah. It was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. I happen to have, yeah, by chance, I kind of have a, a little bit of more, I guess, than the average person, more understanding of sex workers. Because my mum is a counsellor and mm. she counsels a lot of sex workers. It's one of her spe like one of her specialisms is sex is sex counselling sex workers um, se and sex addicts as well. Wow. And I sort of grew up not thinking about sex workers being criminals. So That's like, so interesting. So like I've never like I've never really I found it really difficult. I know I'm not gonna say I found it difficult because it's not difficult. I mean it was so far it was so foreign to me hearing feminists or feminists in quotations talking about sex workers as if they are people that are appeasing patriarchy like mm. as in as if sex workers are something that's bad for society like all these things because for so much of my life my mum was helping these women in, in, a, in a therapist capacity but yeah it's it's 
it's really good to see that there's more being written about. The thing um, is, it's not like, they're not pro-sex work and they're not like, it's an amazing job and no, we love of course, it. Of course. What they're saying is like, you don't have, there's this amazing line which is like, you don't have to like your job to want to keep it. Yeah. And they're like, you know, people on the miner strikes, they weren't like, mining is the most lovely, wonderful no, job. Yeah. But they were like, if we don't have mining, you're going to fuck us. And they were right. Yeah. Like, in the same way, like, you don't have to like being a sex worker to know that it's the easiest way for you to get the resources you need. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, for me, it's like seeing the reality. When I go out, when I come out in the morning and I see them out in the street, how to make them safe. Because yeah. this is this is the, the madness. How people view these people. Sometimes they're uh, they're kind of in between like homelessness and it's, it's a it's a horrible existence. Sometimes I, walk past, I didn't realize I was walking past this house for years. Didn't realize it's a brothel. And this guy showed me. And when he showed me what it was, and I think I did, I, I used to walk past this house every day. Wouldn't even know. But yeah. The conditions in that house were shocking. Mm. And I said to my friend like he was a homeless guy and his yeah. girlfriend was a prostitute. Mm. And he said that they met met each other, and he said he stays there now to try and protect her, because of the way people see them and people view them. He's a young guy; he was twenty five, she was twenty seven. Yeah, I definitely think, and what we've been talking about recently, place and space come into this <laughs> yeah. as well. So, so the people that my mom was counselling were women within Worcestershire, mm-hmm. which is very different. Their experience there's there's some difficult reasons why they ended up in sex work, but I imagine their experiences are very different for those women that you're walking past yeah. in Tower Hamlets. Mm. Um, obviously, very pronounced causes, but the places very much change the experiences and how we understand. Well, yeah, them, like, and a lot yeah. of what they're talking about, like, the laws in the UK are just crazy. So, yeah. like, if you have more than one person working in a flat as sex workers, even if there's no manager, there's no, like, anyone, no one else is taking the profits or creaming anything off, like... If you have two sex workers working together for protection, it's a brothel. It's a brothel. My, right. So you go to prison. So my you lose all the police confiscate all your money. Right. So my, fr- my your children get taken away from my you. My friend told me about this. Right. So my friend who won, he won, he came into a lot of money, and he started hanging around with the police because they had to give him special lessons. Um, Sorry. To, to, to drive a car, to drive a high-powered car, you have to have special lessons, right? So the from police, the police. From the police, he was taking this lesson from a policeman, right? Oh, okay, because they get trained yeah, in yeah. So, high speed. The okay. Gave him the ins and outs of brothels, or what the ones that the police use, and the and all that that law. That's how I became aware of that law. So if there's two women or more, it's yeah. classed as a brothel. But he said this house that they use, he said the way to do it. There's only one person in at one time. Right. So it's like a rotating thing. Yeah. So there's, it could never be classed as a brothel, but it is a brothel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like that's the thing, right? If something happens to you, you have a violent client or something. Mm-hmm. No protection. There's no, but there's no one else there. You like, it's just like all this stuff. Like there was, there were like all these platforms, like websites that developed so that sex workers could alert each other to like dangerous clients. Then the US were like, no, we're gonna make. Well, Trump was like, we're gonna make that illegal. So suddenly, this huge like safety network. There's just so many things in that, and like they look at different situations all around the world. So like, okay, they're focusing on the UK because they're based there, but they look at like Uganda, they look at Australia, they look at different states in the US. Do they talk about um, Secret Diary of a Cool Girl? They book? mention it. What do they say about it? They're just like, so yeah, they kind of look at like, so I've always been completely baffled and I say this as someone like you know I was in like feminist organising and stuff I was always completely baffled by the whole sex work debate because it's like pro-sex work anti-sex work yeah. and I was like the pro-sex work people are like sex is great and empowering and like selling your body can be part of that and like you know and I was like well that doesn't make any sense to me mm-hmm. then the anti-sex work people just 
like are they that the anti women or like well the, um, yeah and like there's this really like heavy moralizing thing mm-hmm. of like you know the clients are evil the sex workers are like poor little victims and it's like yeah okay like those people are like at the margins of society and there's a reason why like women people of color disabled people like people who struggle to make a decent living in a capitalist world end up in sex work because they can't get their money any other way or like you know single mothers whatever um queer people but yeah like it just didn't really, that didn't really ring true to me either, that there's this very kind of, like, you know, really, like, crossed over with the, like, moralising Christian thing, and I was like, that really makes me uncomfortable as well. And then also, yeah, so, like, on the one hand, you've got these media portrayals of sex workers. Sex workers. That's, like, That's like, yeah, secret diary of a cool girl. She's, like, rich, and she loves having sex, she loves having all these rich clients, fantastic. And then on the other hand, you've got, like, a dead sex worker in a crime drama. Mm-hmm. And I think this cuts, like, a really interesting middle way where it's, like, we don't really give a shit about those debates. Like, they look at the problems in both of those arguments, but they're, like, whether you think sex work is a good thing or a bad thing, you should think that sex workers need labour rights. Because everyone needs labour rights. And, like, you have to look at... Like, it has to be more contextualised as well. Like, I don't mind saying this, because people people that are close enough to me um, know it. Maybe not all of my friends. But when I first moved to London, after a year of being here... I signed up to be an escort. I didn't become one. I never did it eventually. Because I was so fucking poor, I was like, I signed up to an escorting agency. I was like, I'll just go out for dinner with men because I need to get money. Yeah. Like, I would consider myself, a, broadly speaking, a feminist and whatever. But there are people out there that would say that that's like an abomination, that that's what that that's, could happen, that I would do, that yeah. I would consider that. And it's like... What do you yeah, want but that's to the thing. Like, like, in the analysis, in the, their analysis, it's like, well, why were you doing that to get the resources you needed? Like, I couldn't afford. I couldn't afford to buy food. I couldn't afford. It's only recently, actually. I'd say recently, about six months ago, I was reminded of it because they called me and they were like, "We saw you on Bumble." And you're like, uh, "GDPR, please take my number <laughs> off that." <laughs> but it just shows you, like, if me, like me, I'm not trying to exceptionalize me but like there are lots of women that go like ha- go through yeah it's standard I've got a relationship with this sort of industry I've done what butter in the buff standard isn't it right? yeah. Like, yeah but I think people tend to I think as academics we tend to theorise a lot and not understand that these are people and people yeah. need to survive and some people are so my friends will say well I don't see why people would do that I say well it depends what kind of person you are some person some people are they feel that the only way they can survive is by selling their body. Yeah. Because they're not violent, so they're not going to rob someone. But yeah, like, you know, for some people, the only options you have are, like, crime or sex work. Mm -hmm. Because you don't need qualifications, you don't need to be a particular person, you don't need a special skill, really. It depends what you're, like I said, it depends what your personality is. Some people, they will gravitate to crime because that's what they're like. But some people are not aggressive all the time. Yeah. And some people might think they it's a talent that they're particularly quite good at having sex yeah. with people. So they think, well, why not? Well, and also, yeah, so the other thing they talk about a lot as well is, like, the alternatives that are offered to sex workers in terms of work are usually shit mm. and really badly paid. And it's like, why would you leave sex work if you're earning more money than you could be cleaning toilets? And, like, there's this amazing line, which is, like, what's so liberating about cleaning up someone else's shit? Mm. And you're like, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, it's also looking at the political moment as well of when, who, 
what's happening, like what's happening with money, what's happening with people's finances. Mm. Like, yeah, I know I wouldn't. I know my experience is not isolated. There would have been people that that thought about the same thing that I did, or did, or have done, or do the same thing that I did. Like, I had a full time sales graduate job. And I was doing a master's and I just moved to London. I couldn't afford my rent. Like, I needed money. Like, how else do you want me to get money? Yeah. And I'm not saying that, that like, I don't know. No, but I don't think you should feel guilty about yeah, it or yeah, have no, to justify I don't, it. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't feel I have to justify it. But it's just sort of like the everyday experiences of existing. Yeah. Like, yeah. You do what you do. You do what you need to survive. That's yeah. right. Standing. Yeah. Standing. Yeah. And uh, like I said, it's not condoning crime or whatever. Yeah. But, people... but most people don't like their jobs, you know? Yeah. Like, most people, like... To have a job you love, a career, is, like, such a fucking privilege. And that's what we talk about a lot here, right? Is that, like, doing a PhD, a lot of people complain about it, and it is really hard, and there are a lot of problems with the system. But you don't have to do a PhD. No one has to do a PhD. Like, there are so many worse things you could be doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Than studying. Like I said, I think, like, I, I, I try to remind myself, my friends, I say, look, when you walk down the street and you see these people, they never woke up and decided, yeah, this is what I want to do. Mm. It's exactly. sometimes through bad choices or circumstances that are beyond their control that you end or up in a place. Or the economy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> things that you have no control over. And, like, I think it's trying to understand, trying to look at someone and understand them from a point of view that's, that it's, yeah, it's not, sometimes it's not their choice. Mm. Mm. And they're doing the best they can with the options that they have. Yeah, you know? absolutely. That sounds like a really good book. It's so good. I mean, literally... Fucking out, like just so, so beautifully written. Mm. I was just like in awe, and I was like, there's like, they don't do that thing where they're like, here are all the statistics, and they explicitly say, like, we're not going to do that. But what they do do is draw on like se- the knowledge of sex workers. That's good. And in like, just, you know, I'm sure people have their disagreements with it, whatever, but I think everyone who, like me, just like had no kind of real way of grasping yeah Yeah. like the kind of ideological position just seems so entrenched and like I was just so confused by the whole thing to have something that kind of sets out like all the different arguments then it's like okay we're taking this path Mm. and here's why it's just yeah it's a very very good book it's a very good book yes so we were talking about um, before we started recording this episode we were talking about what we wanted to talk about and we sort of got a bit exhausted even talking about the different subjects. <laughs> like, I mean, you know you guys know what I mean about the subjects. What is it? Like the far right, Brexit, austerity, fucking Liam Neeson. Uh. Like, like there's just so much now. I, mean, I, I was saying to these guys, like, if we think back to when we started the podcast, which was September 2017, and we're effectively on, like, season three now. Yeah. And what has changed for us in navigating the sociological within these political moments. And I was sort of saying that when we first started, I was so rageful and angry. And that was sort of, that was fueling my work, um, not just my PhD work, but any sort of work outside of the academy I was doing, any sort of voluntary work. But now I'm still doing that stuff, but I sort of feel like I carry a sense of disappointment in the system. Like, I feel... We were talking about being sort of fatigued, weren't we? Um, yeah. And I think it's because I kind of thought... Like, yeah, like, Saskia made a really important point that you can't... A change doesn't come overnight and we have to remember that all the time. I think it's more that I didn't expect things to get worse than they were in September 2017. 
and yeah because we were talking about you know like Grenfell had just happened and just before that was the election where there was another hung parliament and the DUP was roped in to... the, the anti-women's party came in, oh. now in government and then the year before that we had Brexit um, yeah so I don't know I, for me at one point in my journey I felt like smug because I thought I'd been reading about it for so long but now it's become reality and I'd see the fringes and I'd be thinking, well, I told you. Mm, I told yeah. you this was going to happen. But now I don't want to be smug or... I don't, that's not how I want to be. I want to kind of engage in people and trying to think, how do we move past this? How do I get past this? So my kind of work now is centered on trying to find solidarities within people or groups of people. And, where, and, where these, and if they do exist in certain places and spaces... How do we kind of make that make these more real? Because I I value where I grew up and the bonds I have with people of different groups of ethnicities, genders, uh, sexual orientation. I value those, and I think people are become so entrenched they don't see the everyday, the power of the everyday. Uh, yeah, I think just on that point, so I given given something to sort of illustrate a little bit what you're saying i went to a couple of months ago i got my hair done i got it braided in a pop-up near you yeah. in east london yeah. like by the docklands Southkey. Southkey. Yeah. and basically it was this group of um black mixed race indian women that had set up a, a hair braiding um salon for the community basically it's incredible wow. and what they'd done is they'd negotiated with the property developers to let them stay in there whilst they were selling the property so like a like a I don't know like there's loads of things that's wrong with that but it was just felt really amazing and it felt like a proper convivial space and like it was just a really nice environment like there were white women bringing their black kids in to get their hair braided like like, as in like learning about hair and then there was like Indian women like it was just really like a nice space and men coming in as well boy and it felt like a convivial space and I went put my book my hair again earlier this week and the property developers said that they would give them a year contract they told them three days before they were due to um open again they they said no can't do it because they closed over Christmas and they were going to open again and they said um no you're not doing it anymore I don't know and that's uh, like the stuff that you're talking about those, those solidarities and how important they are I just think there's been quite a few moments like that where we've had the solidarities and then they've sort of been ripped apart. And I don't know, like, I know that's only like a tiny example, but it, it just, it made me so sad. I was like, this is so emblematic. Yeah, I saw a PhD of... offer the other day, which was like someone at Queen Mary's in East London or someone, some, somewhere, something, I can't remember, whatever. Yeah. They were offering like a PhD funded place uh, for people to study like, Basically, there's like a crisis in affordable places to work in East London. That just made me think of that. Okay. Like, just being able to rent a space to run a hair. Wow, thing. yeah, that's amazing. And like, it's because a really um, thing, yeah. it was like, I don't know if it was Network Rail, someone like that was selling off railway arches because yeah. they've now become workspaces and stuff yeah like developments like all that kind of shit and like they were like this is terrible like if those were public um amenities Mm. like yeah you could do stuff like that you could have a pop-up and be like yeah like let's fucking let's have something for our community yeah let's do something for the people who live here and yeah it's really disturbing that 
yeah, it's always it's always the developers who have all the power. Yeah, and obviously this is this is stuff. I don't want to say that this is possibly getting worse. Yeah, I, I don't think it's getting worse. I think you're just you're more attuned to it. So okay, I think these things. It's being a bit older. I see these things going on all the time. I I speak to my mum, who's older again, and these things don't disappear. It's just you're just more attuned to them, and the internet and the twenty four hour news cycle brings your attention to them more. Oh, I wanted to ask you too. I was thinking about this earlier when you were speaking. You know, you were saying that like lots of people come and talk to you about their like racist theories. Yes. Yeah. Like, do people ever talk to you about stuff to do with Windrush? No. Never. No. They don't care because. <laughs> <laughs> but as in, like you know, no, as someone no. whose family is like part of that. No, I think what people are interested to they 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 kind of come kind of like from the from the from the back so they'll talk about mass immigration but they'll never talk about windrush itself they'll talk about mass immigration and okay. then they quickly because I'm black and obviously they're usually speaking to me they they'll talk about Jews or Bangladeshi. What, you think people avoid saying black people yeah, because of you? Oh, no, because I think that's, for me, sorry, when we were talking about this, I said, I think a lot of people say racist stuff to me because I think it's fine as well. Yeah, but, that's what, but, but they say stuff to me about black people. Yeah, yeah, you're a woman. That, oh, yeah, they're quite aggressive, though, yeah, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, you're a woman. Or like, oh, yeah, but, but, but black women are hard work. Yeah, and yeah, I think, like I said, <laughs> the people I'm speaking to generally are not going to say stuff to me because the way I look or how they know me. But... They will talk to me about, like I said to you, the other guy talking about Hitler and how, how great he is. And, and it was just weird how the conversation went. I mean, yeah, like there was all this stuff. I mean, like, I try not to follow the news cycle anymore, yeah. except by my Twitter. And there was all this stuff about like people debating the legacy of Winston Churchill mm-hmm. and like oh people getting very God. upset when you say, like, oh, well, he murdered like three million Indians. And you're like, they did. I mean, like, for academic context, people read Remy Joseph Salisbury's new um, article in the Sociological Review about Winston Churchill. It's really good. Oh, is it? Really, really good. I saw... It's called, does anyone care about... Does anyone really care what a racist says? I can't remember the next part of it, but basically he talks about how people justify... But I, I feel Churchill's like the current debates cool. around, for example, say Winston Churchill, I think they are ahistorical. They try to... They don't look at history as it is... They, they try to look for a good and a bad side. Oh my god, yeah, no, this is what was really funny when I went to see David Goodhart, like, chief fucking racist speak, was that he was kept going like, we can't look at history with the standards of the present. And it's like, well, how else are you, like, we're always going to be looking at stuff that happened from a particular stamp. But, you know, we're kind of being like, you can't call people, right? you can't call the colonies a bad thing because you're putting the standards of the present on the past. And you're like, but I don't think, like, mass murder was ever something that I, people I know, would have thought of as acceptable. And I think as a as a kind of kind of trainee historian, historian, like, yeah, you can't... The old the first thing you learn in history is that you shouldn't apply the standards of today to the past. However, someone like Mr. Churchill, he, he in his own words, is a, is a white supremacist. Yeah. He believed in the superior of the white I mean, white keep race. Britain white. Yeah. Was, he wanted to have that as a fucking election slogan so, in the so, 50s. So that's, that's him. But I'm trying to say to people, you have to look at the, the, t- the person in totality, right? So understand there's no such thing as a good and a bad person. Mm. You have to look at the person in totality. So they, they, some people do some shitty things, right? I think, but sorry to cut you, T, mm. but I think the difference with the Winston Churchill debate is it was only until recently, and I mean in the last five years, that I found out that the what Winston Churchill did and mm. like his life. So so I think the point is like 
obviously we can see the nuances in people, but we are told that he is great no yeah. matter what. I, so I, I think that, I think it's less about... I know, but I, what I try to tell people this is this, right? Winter Church was part of the state narrative, so they, they've got uh, they've got an interest in pushing the state... Pushing the but that doesn't make it okay. No, it doesn't make it okay, but I, <laughs> but I understand that. I get that. So I'm not going to learn that from school, but I try to see someone... It's a pro- Why? Why can't... But it's what, a, but it's what? a proactive thing. It's not in their interest to p- present someone... So, example, they're not going to present... Pit the younger in a certain way. They're not going to present which in church because these are heroes. But in why? But, 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 but why shouldn't we, just, we question can that? We just, can we of course, just... of course, we question that. And and I try to say to people it's a proactive thing. So when I learned about Churchill, the first thing I learned about Churchill was when I got as a girl who she was Irish. So I learned about when Churchill what he did to the people in Ireland. And do you want to just say what that is? Because so when he's the, the kind of black and tans and the oppression of the Irish people, the, the Irish Republic. Sorry. So. I always knew... Economic oppression or... And, no, and violent. Violence. 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 Okay. Mm. It's just like Oliver Cromwell. You're not going to... The state's not going to tell you the no, whole truth. I let, so no, hang on. I'm not, I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to be antagonistic, mm. but at school, mm. I did a whole A-level module on the atrocities of Oliver Cromwell. Mm. Why do we not learn about the atrocities of Winston Churchill? That's so interesting. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. You did a module a, on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like 50% of that, my A-level. What was, was your a, What was the rest history. of your A-level? No, I know, I know. Oh, but uh, what Russia, period did you Russian do? Russian Revolution. And Oliver Cromwell. And, yeah, so, and Oliver Cromwell and the Stuarts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I just, I think, I do agree with about 90% of your yeah. argument, but... There does seem to be some nitpicking in who's allowed to be painted as. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. So why does well, and also it? maybe because like Oliver Cromwell eventually was over, like his ideology was overthrown yeah, and the royals like, were reinstituted. I wonder. But you're also looking at yeah. Oliver Cromwell from like he's that's a long time ago. Which so, is, t- so that's the cri- so yeah, time that's is, the time's criteria. Time's a big The criteria is time. But no, no one's looking at which Churchill's a kind of. He's, he's, he's kind of escapades in Africa or, or India or anything like that because nice word for it <laughs> because like, he's, he's brought up in an era of, of empire so this is what rich white people watch white yeah but you say that but like the fact we don't talk about what Winston Churchill did in Ireland the fact we don't talk about what Margaret Thatcher did in Ireland yeah, you know cool. like that's it's, time. it's not time it's not time I don't think it's an ideological it's project else. yeah I think it's I do think it might be something else other than time because I think we'll still be or they will still be yeah glorifying these people but, 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 like if you look at anti-Irish racism for example like that is still so present yeah. like you know we talk a lot or I seem to end up talking a lot about like the ways in which Harry Potter is problematic like the anti-Irish racism in Harry Potter is so casual and like all the other kinds of racism are as well Islamophobia Islamophobia there's like anti like Cho Chang it's two surnames mm. and aren't they like Korean they're not even is she meant to be Chinese yeah, well, I mean, there's we can so talk many about things. the problems of Harry Potter for yeah <laughs> but exactly said like at the moment we're speaking about Winston Churchill like I said it's a time thing right now we are talking about him and we're talking about him in a critical way and this this we, we are but, we, but, no, but no, this is, this is a, it's like a, a, almost like a national debate so my, one of my friends sent me because the, sta- the statue's going yeah, up yeah he sent me a Another meme one. trying to goad me into kind of arguing about Winston Churchill and like, <laughs> I can see this like at the moment but this is the moment we're in so like I said it's a time thing we're talking about him now some people don't want to see him maligned and they want to see his national position kept forever sacrosanct and there's other people that want to kind of talk about it in a more realistic way no but the point is is why are we talking about Winston Churchill now like what is significant about Winston Churchill and, and it's the second world war and Brexit is this whole fucking second world war fantasy but, no, but, but it's not just the second world it's at the moment for me Brexit is like Britain going through its middle age crisis it's trying to work out its place in this world and it's talking about itself in a kind of 
what am I? Where do I belong now? And it's your question, things of our, our national identity at the moment. So Richard Churchill is part of that national narrative. I'm um, not sure I agree. So my question is, I agree that people don't, like, school and whatever aren't going to have any narratives that are against the state and whatever. No. But why? Like, why do we believe that talking about ourselves or looking at ourselves is something that's going to produce something bad? Do you know what I mean? Like, right, why but, is it that uh, they... I'll give, give, give you an example. Once you start admitting, admitting things that you think are uncomfortable truths, right? So, for example, when you learn about the Normans in school, you don't learn about the harrying of the North, the way the Normans killed lots of people in, in the North of England, setting them to the kind of four corners of the earth. You don't learn about that. But then the national narrative you're told is about the Battle of Hastings. That's all you know. But, but, do, but that's still not answering my question. Why do we not think? Why, why do we not think? What are people so afraid of? Why, people, what are we people, afraid people of? People never want to see themselves of, yeah. in a bad light. Okay. I think it's, yeah, it's an ideological okay. project. Like, yeah. if you look at what the British values are, which I found really interesting when I did my master's in school and also my friend who is a teacher, whenever you said to someone, what are British values? Because, you know, like all schools have to have this like poster yeah, in yeah. the school and they all have to teach British values. Is that Michael Guy? Teach. Uh, it's David Cameron. Okay. It's like this whole prevent strategy, you know, stopping terrorism. Oh, teachers make a big show, or like these teachers make a big show of not remembering what they are. Well, even though they teach them all the time, and even though they're a big part of the syllabus, because it's almost like they want to disassociate themselves from that project. This is quite right. interesting. When I went, I went to I was at a school okay. maybe a couple of weeks ago, a primary school, and I was looking at the wall about... What, what were you doing there? Um, filming a film, I think it was. I can't remember what film it was. Oh, I see, okay. But on the wall, it had British values, right? Yeah, they have to. And this is the best thing. I was like... What are British values? And one of the British values. Oh, yes. Wait, wait, wait. One of the British values was rule of law. The rule of law. Yeah. Was like, Amazing. Was isn't like, it? Are you? Are you actually insane? <laughs> and it, I was looking what they what they forced the kids to learn. And again, it's this kind of narrative of the nation of Britain being a, a nation of fair play, a nation, a nation mm. of rules, and all this kind of stuff. It's very empire esque. Oh yeah. It's, it's deeply. Ingrained. I mean, tolerance. What the fuck is tolerance? Yeah. A fair play. Like tol like tolerance in itself is like a very dodgy word because yeah. it's like. But you, but you see, at the moment, these things are being all called into question. This national narrative that we've been set up, and it's you can you can see the heartbreaking people, and they've become entrenched position. Like so, even to the kind of fantasy, like we can go around the world. Like I had the one guy saying, Britain's what Britain's role in the world is still as a number one player, regardless of the facts. That's how they perceive themselves. Did anyone watch? Um like, I watched it because I read quite a good review about it. I just wanted to see what the hype was. But um, the Brexit film, the, uh, the Uncivil War, the Benedict Cumberbatch. No. It's not quite what you think it's going to be. And it okay. is to do with, it's about basically how Leave, the Leave campaign or the official Leave campaign, which was which had like Boris and Michael and the main guy. Oh, I can't even remember his name. Aaron remember. Banks. No, Aaron Banks was on the other side, so he was uh, the, he was the one. Yeah, 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 or yeah, okay. Anyway, so it's to do with, and it's basically looking at um, the film is about how they strategized the I uh, Brit British values basically in the Brexit debate, and one of the thing one of the um, visuals in the film is like a chart, and it's basically got like. 
people that will vote Brexit, people that definitely won't Brexit, and these people in the middle. Mm-hmm. And they talk about um, how they engage those people and the slogans that they use. Obviously, like, we know, like, take back control, um, British values, British jobs, like, all these things that were so symbolic. And then, obviously, on the Remain side, they were using the economy. It's about the economy. Like, we're Stronger in. But, I just, but, but it is actually... And I'm, I, it sounds... Obviously, it's bit vulgar, like Bend and Cumberbatch, whatever. But it is actually quite a good film because it just shows how those those symbolisms are able to capture the minds of middle class, working class, like everyone yeah. basically. And that's what they did. They they targeted that group of people. Yeah. That but is even the idea, like uh, I was listening to one guy speak the other day in the radio. He was arguing with a historian, and he was he was trying to kind of. Point out how it's Britain that won World War Two, regardless of the fact that the, it roles, was the, Americans. the roles of the <laughs> empire, or regardless to have, for example, of the kind of the uh, Russian deaths, like what twenty six million people died from Russia, right? How much they you could argue that it was Russia. Sorry, twenty six million yeah. in the Second World War. Yeah. You can argue that Russia won World War Two. You could make a decent argument about yeah. that. Yeah. But this guy is convinced of the centrality and the importance of Britain. D-Day, it was all about D-Day, and, and that was all us, right? No one else is involved. Myth, and like, I remember what I told you, so I, I went to um, a dinner um, a couple of years ago with the South Korean president, and he only... He only <laughs> Sorry, s- backtrack, what the fuck? Right, so we I thought you spoke about this in the podcast when my, before. My mum was doing the counselling thing. Oh, yeah, 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 so yeah. yeah. South, okay. So there's a massive meeting, that I think they signed a treaty with the UK, and at that meeting, they spoke of Britain in terms of firsts, First, the Industrial Revolution, first. But they said, know your place. Know your place. I respect you. You're like an old man. I respect you. Yeah. You've earned your place. But in 2009, two, well, 2017, it was a time, this is where you are. Yeah. So don't forget, you've done these good things, but don't get carried away with that well, narrative. Good and, is a... Is a <laughs> and, this, and this is what the Russians reminded, reminded Britain of. Well, this, is, they said, this is not the charge of the light brigade anymore. Yeah. But this notion, this narrative that is so well ingrained in people's heads, they don't look at the reality. Mm. Who was it who was saying it's like, you know, at the end of the Roman Empire, everyone went nuts. I, I was, my dad said the other day. Yeah, that was My me. dad was saying that um, this current moment is like identical to the fall of the Roman Empire. It, Basically, you see the far right, they use that narrative a lot at the moment. So one of the key things... The end the, of empires, basically. Yeah. The key thing, the, one of the fourth downfall of the rest of the Western Roman Empire was migration. It's one of the key factors, right? Because it changed the way the Roman Empire worked. But without that migration, people forget you wouldn't have modern Europe. Yeah. Well, and also, migration, like, what were the Romans doing? They were fucking migrating all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Roman Britain, the Romans were like not British, from Britain. Like British emigration. Ah! <laughs> it's huge, but, it's huge. But, but it was, always has been, because how do you yeah. run an empire unless you send people to the places you're colonising? Well, it's the fact that the Romans saw themselves as superior, like the British or, or Western values see themselves as superior, yeah. and what's coming in as inferior. Yeah. But what, and so we call it the Dark Ages, for example, when they did migration. Self-destruct. But without those people, without the Dark Ages, you wouldn't have modern Europe. So who's to say what would happen? Oh, then? you love that narrative of progress, too. So it makes man. me so uncomfortable. It makes me so uncomfortable. But without that, without the change, without that change, you wouldn't have what we've got now. Yeah, but do, is what we have now a good thing? I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying without that, people are saying people are saying it's a bad thing. But I'm saying without that, without those changes, we wouldn't have what we have now. So without those, my, without the Dark Ages happening, you wouldn't have modern Europe take place. And this is what people are arguing against. I mean, it's an interesting thing, though, right? Because, yeah, like, you're right. Um, (laughs) But it's interesting that this fascist 
wave which we're seeing in Britain with like the way migrants are being dehumanized and deported and like you know the violence of austerity and all that kind of stuff like it is not just a British thing Oh, like it's happening in India, it's happening in other European countries, happening in the US, it's happening in Brazil. Like, I agree with you totally about all the stuff about the UK, and like, I feel like I don't know enough about other countries. Progress I, for who? Yeah, I, I, but like, it's more like what? What is? What is everyone so afraid of? At the moment, people are afraid of, for example, China. China's a good example. China are expanding at a, at a kind of ever-increasing rate and through the schemes like the BRI or the String of Pearls, China are strategically putting themselves and pushing their own people out. And it's making people feel, people feel that, for example, in Thailand and Pakistan, that Chinese people are taking over their countries. But I don't see, but I don't see that narrative of China within the pop, Populism or the far right. I know, like, I know that isn't happening. If you go to Thailand and you speak to people in Thailand, okay. they will tell they will tell you they feel like with, with China increasing their money, they're shipping over crime because Chinese tries are coming over invading, and they feel like they're not getting their jobs. They feel like they're building like like like, like casinos and stuff to the detriment of the of the people there. I did there. see Chinese casinos in Goa. So the, and, and so this this is but what, that doesn't. But, but this, then this like, like yeah, it's just, that doesn't mean. But that's not. I don't want to. We shouldn't exceptionalize China because this is something that's happened. No, but it's just a throughout new, history. This, yeah. Yeah. This is yeah. that's doing it. Um, Saskia, how do you feel about? How do you feel your feelings have changed towards the sociological and the political since we started? Since we started. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because I agree with you that I definitely feel like less angry on the surface a lot of the time. Like I definitely, you know, like I've talked about this before, like I stopped listening to the news, I stopped reading the news. I picked up The Guardian the other day and just like so regretted it because I was reading this article about the woman who plays the main character in uh, Beale Street. You know, the if Beale Street could talk. If Beale yeah. Street could talk, yeah. yeah. So she plays the the female love interest and uh it's just this article by some old white man being like oh yes she's taken to the life of an ingenue very well and just like wrote about her in this disgusting sexist way Mm. i was just like it's just not for me (laughs) the news it's just not for me anyway that's like a side thing but yeah i think i've definitely but then like in some other way like in, in some ways i felt like very fed up and like very like i just don't want to take part in this anymore but then like i've got much more involved in like activism yeah. i've like channeled my energies into kind of like finding those networks of people that make me feel like okay well at least someone's trying to do something like resistance exists solidarity exists like one of the reasons i joined lgsm which is lesbians and gays to support the migrants is because it's like you know, that idea that queer people know what it's like to be oppressed and that, like, you can share solidarity with other people who are victims of state violence. Or, like, you know, the police are no longer harassing gay bars, but, like, there is those, those memories of that violence are still very present within the queer community. And so, like, being able to extend that solidarity to other people who are now, like, the target of state violence... I think there's something, like, that has huge value in there. And, like, being able... Yeah, so having those networks of people, but also, yeah, like, just doing a PhD, you know? It's, like, it changes a lot (laughs) as you go. And so I think, you know, like, I started with those more kind of, like, headline news things, and now I've been going into, like, more theory and stuff. 
like I just spent a month reading about like regional policy in the 1980s and like seeing those kinds of violences in like regional policy you kind of like it's so dry and boring and then you're like oh god this is really like the crux of Thatcherism is like fucking whole swathes of the country over by being like we don't need a regional policy and it's like yes you do like you just like it's just like literally leaving people on the scrap heap and being like you are no longer of value in the kind of society that we've envisaged Mm -hmm. and then you wonder why like political parties don't represent people like you can't you can't do that to people Mm. one of my friends I'll put you in touch with Carl he's an expert on EU regional policy, that's what he's mm. been doing for the last four years, working for the EU as well. I, did, I just found out the other day that the EU gave Barnsley quite a lot of money over mm-hmm. the past ten years. I didn't realise mm-hmm. that. Yeah, so yeah. Um, Grimethorpe in 1992 or something, which is like an old mining village, village next to Barnsley or in Barnsley. I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure what the geography of it is. Um, but yeah, that it was named like one of the most deprived places in the whole of the European Union. And so they poured like millions and millions of euros or pounds whatever into Barnsley Um, but yeah it's an interesting one because like the kinds of jobs that are there now are like the ASOS Mm -hmm. warehouse Mm -hmm. and the conditions are horrific Mm -hmm. like that's the thing it's like someone was saying the other day who's uh, from Wales she was saying like you know everyone says oh well you know Wales voted to leave that's so stupid because the EU pours so much money into Wales and it's like yeah they build like bridges and stuff but like people don't have more jobs Mm. like people aren't seeing the material benefits Mm. of EU membership Mm. so yeah it was interesting Mm. so I feel like yeah maybe it's just like when we started the wounds of Brexit was still so raw and like you could see the kinds of catastrophes that are coming but now now that we're in them it's just like total stasis like there is no movement it's like if I spent all my energy focusing on what's happening politically around Brexit I would just spend my days like totally paralyzed and like I just can't think about that I don't know I just think I I really want to help people in reality so I'm you tend to I'll tend to gravitate to things that are more kind of grassroots Mm. Like this stuff that's this, this melodrama that's kind of it's kind of it's around us now. Whatever's happened is going to happen. Yeah. And so I just trying to, to to find my way through this to navigate through this, trying to help people in the in what I think is a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Be that it might be a conversation with someone or something more formal, like in a kind of activist activism setting. So mm-hmm. you know. So I feel like you've always done activism though. You're like this like low key lone ranger activist going around like yeah. having conversations with people. It, 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 like even like with stuff like helping kids and like one of my friends like um, having problems with one of their kids to speak to their kids and trying to help kids navigate the world that they exist in, which mm. is to me, it's like a, it's an insane world, but a world that kind of none of us are, are privy to. It's all online and it's international. Mm. Which is it's like it's heavy, yeah. It's heavy like the music they listen, even the music they listen to. I I have no idea. Mm. K pop, J rock, insane. Yeah, it's New, really really popular now. K pop, massive massive world like music from South Africa. I'm like you live in like a town up north, but you listen to like pop music from South Africa. It's a whole new world, and the problems that kind of encounter like with friends and so yeah, it's trying to make sense. I just think like to, not that I kind of dismiss Brexit and all that, but trying to help people in a way that I think is meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
Definitely. And now, and how can we help people in a way that's meaningful that is also disrupting the structures that have oppressed those people? Mm. Which I think is something that's really difficult. Like, how can we do work with the causes that we care about, but also try and do something which brings about or contributes to any sort of structural change is, I think, going to be one of the... It's like, I found the other day, that's a whopping, obviously, it's been kind of been fully gentrified in East, in East End. They're going to start empl- employing a private police force to um, oh, patrol gosh. all of whopping. It's been fully gentrified now, so... Sorry? That's happened in parts of Birmingham, yeah. I'm pretty sure. So what do you mean? Uh, they're going like to pay for They're going to pay like It's yeah. 80,000 pounds a year. Who's paying? The Government. residents. No, residents. Oh. What, they've clubbed together? Yeah, they're going to crowdfund to pay for their own police force now because they're fed up of the drug dealers and the lack of police so they don't mind buying the drugs though yeah exactly, exactly. they'll so all spend the money on the, the cocaine thing. the drug dealers are coming because they get customers there so um they wow. uh, they, 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 they it runs in belgravia at the moment so they've been speaking to belgravia and this is what they're going to do because rich people can privatize their own area basically and no one's going to do anything about it. Oh, I thought you meant that's even more sinister than what I thought it was. I thought you meant as in government paying, like, no, 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 this is so this They're, is the residents are contracting, yeah, that's disgusting. So, the, the, <laughs> so the police who sorry, it's not funny, but I'm but, just like, like, this is the world, this is, this is the world, and it and this is what's going on right now. This is not, it's not going in far away, this is home. And you, you I think to myself, well, what do you do? What do you do? Uh, I don't know. Resist. Resist. <laughs> Resist. Resilience. Nah. Yeah. What, what's another R? It's going to be the name of the episode. Resist. Resilience. I think the thing is not it's to feel too... It can yeah. feel tiring, this whole kind of... This onslaught. But I think it's just looking for spaces, moments, you know? Yeah. Space looking to breathe. The, yeah, look at those moments. And on that note... Uh, you've been listening to Surviving Society in 2019, season three. Um, we'll be back with a couple of episodes this academic term. Um, follow us on social media. Um, we can keep you updated. <laughs>